0: And please turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter one. Sue and I have been getting out into the yard, especially in the beautiful weather we had earlier in the week. Cutting, cutting out some, we digging out some weeds and cutting off some things that need to be pruned. Our plants have finally been in the ground long enough, enough years, that they're really starting to mature and fill in and look good. And, you know, it's that, it's that vision that you have when you first plant things that uh, you think, oh, this is going to look so great. And, and you wait and you wait. And finally, this is the year when it looks great. Um, there's dangers to landscaping. And, uh, you know, I'm keeping an eye. We have a weeping cherry tree. And the last couple of years, um at some point i I look out there and it's just covered in caterpillars and i think what in the world and and uh i think and, and they're right in the top and i think you know do you have wings do you fly there i don't get that and so i uh i very graciously pick every single one one at a time and take him somewhere else uh, either that, or I spray weed <laughs> bug killer like it's going out of style. One of the two. This year, I'm trying to get ahead of that. You know, when we were weeding this week, uh, Sue says, "Hey, that, something's eating this plant over here." Man, I ran right to the right to the shed and got the weed killer, and I just started spraying everything, or the bug killer, just spraying everything with bug killer. And I do not want my trees and plants to be eaten and to die. I want them to grow. I want them to flourish. I'm spending some time in my last few sermons with you talking about how to grow your faith. And I want you to understand today as we begin that your faith in God is a garden that must be tended. Spiritual growth happens by the power of the Holy Spirit But it doesn't happen without your effort. And in particular today, I want you to understand that one of the bugs that will inhibit the growth of your faith is a lack of prayer. Lack of prayer leads to a lack of faith. There is a, a growing of faith through the ministry of prayer. And so I, I want to start today by helping you to understand that faith-growing prayer is based in God's identity. And I want to read a passage of Scripture that, that you will immediately think, that's, that's not for April, that's for December. Luke 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also. That holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. You're familiar with that story. You might be able to quote parts of it. I suspect we don't spend enough time in verse 37 and too much time in the earlier part of the text. With God, nothing shall be impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. Most of us who have believed in Christ as our Savior would not say anything negative and I know that's a double negative, but I'll say it anyway. We would pull back from saying anything negative about God. That, the fancy word for that in the scripture is blasphemy. We would not blaspheme God. We would not speak poorly about God. And yet there are often some unspoken questions that we need to answer if we would pray in a way that grows our faith. And the first one comes right from this verse. And the question is this. Is God powerful enough to answer prayer? Is God powerful enough to answer prayer? When verse 37 says, with God nothing will be impossible, is that true? Now, I'm sure if I ask you to raise hands and say, is verse 37 true, you'd all go, oh yeah, that's true, that's in the Bible, that's God's word. And I appreciate that. But the question I'm asking today is, do you genuinely believe God has all of the power necessary to answer your prayer? We believe in the virgin birth of Christ. We we believe believe in the miracle that's spoken of here. That the Virgin Mary uh, conceived by the power of god alone and we don't have any trouble believing that and yet when it comes to verse 37 and we say now does god have all of the power that i need for my life Hmm. we believe god created the universe we believe god raised jesus from the dead but in the words of paul do we believe this he who is able to do exceedingly Abundantly above all that we ask or think. You see, I'm not the only one who does double negatives or double positives. God did it before me. Exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Do you believe God has that much power? I would submit to you that if you believe it, then you ask him for help on a consistent basis. But if your prayer life is a little bit puny, it could be because you're not really certain God can do anything that he decides to do. The second question. Turns this uh, diamond just a little bit to ask this Is God loving enough to answer prayer? Turn over a few pages to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Luke 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass as Jesus was praying. Luke includes that little detail, the other authors do not, the other gospel authors. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now that is, a, that is not a prayer primarily to be repeated, but a prayer to be used as a model for prayer. And each one of those pieces, uh, each one of those individual sentences or prayers, if you will, help us to know what we should be praying. But look what he says right afterwards. Verse five. And he said to them, which one of you shall have a friend and go into him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. Typically in that day they would make some bread when the guy came to visit, but it's midnight and then it'll be what, one, two o'clock in the morning before the bread gets done? Give me some bread, verse seven. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me, the door is shut, my children are in bed with me, ew, I cannot rise and give to you. Not in my house, but, but that's the way, You know, they all kind of gathered together in a room and slept, that's what he's talking about there. And he said, I'm I'm already tucked in, I can't help you. Verse eight, I say to you that though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, (laughs) he's not going away. He will rise and give him as many as he needs. Now that is not the end of the teaching. Yes, he talks about persistence in prayer, but look at this, verse 9. So, so I say to you, here's the moral of the story. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and it will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The moral of this long teaching on prayer is this. Your friend... Your friend only comes to the door to get you off his back. But your father cares for you because you are his child. And when you are praying, you're praying to your heavenly father. Now, I know that the image of father doesn't necessarily create something positive in everybody's mind. Not everybody had a positive father model or a perfect father model. In fact, if I stop and think for a minute, I'm pretty sure none of us had a perfect father model. But he's drawing an image to us here of a loving father. And he, 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 he reasons and saying, look, would a loving father give what a child does, you know, something terrible to a child instead of what the child needs, no. He says, that is the way your father is. He will care for you. And going forward on this theme of the love of God, the apostle Paul pens these wonderful words. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely offer us all things now God is not saying that he's the divine ATM and you just get whatever you want whatever you ask for whenever you ask that's not what he's saying but what he is saying is he will not withhold any good thing from those who love him he knows what is good and what is good for us he who shall bring a charge again who will bring a charge against God's elect is it God who justifies. Who is he who can condemn? Is it as Christ who died and furthermore is risen? The the answer to these questions is obviously no. Christ is not going to condemn. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Do you get that right there? He said. If we find ourselves in distress, in persecution, in famine, hard times, nakedness, hard times, or peril, if we find ourselves there, does that mean God has stopped loving us? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, or powers, or things present, or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God. Is God loving enough to answer prayer? Or does he sit up in heaven and withhold his good just because... He didn't feel like it. Did God care enough about you to save your soul? Yes. Does God care enough for you to get you to heaven? Yes. Does God love you enough to protect you from the devil? Yes. And yet somehow we're not quite sure if he's going to answer our prayers. I can trust him with my eternal soul in the path to heaven, but today... And the questions I have today and the concerns I have today, is he going to be loving enough for that? The answer is yes. Well, the next question that I would consider is this. Is God interested enough to answer prayer? Surely he's powerful and loving, but is he really interested in me and in my concerns? Turn to Luke chapter 18, please. Luke 18. I've I've encountered a sentiment a number of times from Christians that goes something like this. God isn't interested in my little problem. And, you know, they would extrapolate that out to say, well, if if there's a big problem, then God is interested. Or or if there is, you know, war, then God is interested. But my little problem, he's probably not that interested in. Um, Look at Luke 18, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God or regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him often, saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God or regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Now, again, this passage is not trying to teach us, here's what you need to do to get something from God. Just keep coming, just keep coming, just keep coming, just keep coming. And eventually God will go, I am so tired of you, okay. That's not what it's teaching He's saying, you know what, there are, there are people in the earth who are responsible for making judgments, and, and they, this is how they do things. And then he says, won't God, if that's how some human beings are, won't God take care of you since he is interested in you? God is interested. Won't God avenge his own his own, verse 7, his own elect, his own chosen ones. Won't God do that? In other words, there's a contrast between these two kinds of people. And the answer to the question, is God interested enough to pray for our prayer? The answer is yes. When we were in Bellevue a few weeks ago for the Baptist Network Northwest Conference, my neck got all out of whack, and I really needed to see the chiropractor, and, and that was on saturday morning good luck finding a chiropractor open on a saturday especially one you haven't seen before and you know we're not going to be home for a few days and so on and so we went i had a meeting on saturday afternoon so we had a a few hours to kill in between meetings and we were just out driving around the Factoria area of bellevue and and we saw a place that said chiropractor and it had the open sign lit and I think it even said walk-ins welcome. I thought, praise God! So we walked over there, and and uh, door was open. We walked in, and you know, this this uh, female doctor came out, and and she you know looked at us with that inquisitive look, and we said, well, hey, uh, you know, um, can can you see me? Can you help me? My neck's all out of whack. And she pointed to the door where it said we close at twelve. And it was 1210 and I'm with a patient now, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Have a heart lady. Nope, no. (laughs) Hey friends, God doesn't keep office hours. That's right. And he doesn't have a limit on how many prayers he can hear in a day. God has an infinite capacity for caring for all of us. You are not wasting his time or keeping someone else with a greater concern from being heard. You know, it's not like, well, if I go to God in prayer, somebody else might not get theirs heard, and they might be really important. God has an infinite capacity, and he is interested. And so the last question I would ask about the character of God is this. Is God honest enough to answer prayer? Is he honest enough? He said he would answer prayer. Is he honest enough? Turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14, we're going to start in verse 22. There's a story here that uh, you might be familiar with if you've been around God's Word in any length of time. Um, about a guy named Peter and, and Jesus and Peter walking on the water. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, this whole event has just happened. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is a huge lake, basically. And he sent the multitudes away. We drop down in the story down to verse 25. Um, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea in other words, the disciples took the boat. They're out in the middle somewhere, and he came walking on the water. Jesus came walking to them on the sea, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. You know, our English, our our, our little few words really doesn't get it, does it? I mean, they did not expect him to walk on the water. Okay, he they were troubled. Verse twenty six saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Jesus said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, that's stepping over the edge He walked on the water to go to Jesus. Can you imagine that? Peter was a guy just like you and me. Trust me. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, that it was boisterous, no doubt he saw the white caps, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Is God honest enough to answer prayer? You know, if we define prayer as asking from God, here's Peter saying, if you're really God, cause me to walk with you. He says, come on. Peter gets out and starts walking, and then he looks around, he starts sinking, and he says, Lord, save me, and, and what happened? He reached out his hand and pulled him back up. Is God honest enough to answer prayer? God is not like the high school friend who says, hey, give me five, and when you go to do it, he goes, whoa, fooled you. He's not like the boss who promises a raise and then makes excuses for why he can't follow through. God is not like a politician who will promise the world And we're seeing that all around us, aren't we? Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Whether you're on one side of this coin or the other, they're both making big promises. I will build a wall so big. And on the other side, everybody's going to get a free college education. And you know what? Neither one of those things are going to happen. The only thing that will happen is somebody's going to get elected. God doesn't make election year promises. The children's movie Polar Express popularized a song by a fellow named Josh Groban which contains these words as part of the first verse. Believe in what your heart is saying. Hear the melody that's playing. There's no time to waste. There's so much to celebrate. Believe in what you feel inside. Give your dreams the wings to fly. You'll have everything you need. Sing it with me. If you just believe. The only problem with that song is, as as lovely as Josh Groban is and as wonderful a musician as he is and whoever wrote that song is very musically lovely, God does not call us to just believe as though we had something inside of us that could provide the substance for the stuff that we need. Faith is not about your ability to believe, nor about what you have inside, but about the God on whom you believe. You need to know whom you have believed, as the song says, and to whom you have committed yourself. And so we ask these questions about God. Who is God and can I trust him? Is he powerful enough? Does he love me? Is he honest? Is he telling me the truth? And I need to come to grips with who God is and put my faith in him. And that's why Jesus said, you only need faith like a mustard seed, but it needs to be in the oak tree or in God. Faith growing prayer is based in God's identity, and it's also based in God's priorities. Based in God's priorities. And the first of those is a phrase that we use frequently, God's glory. And when we, when we think of that phrase, when we say that phrase, often this verse will come to mind. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We know that that's a, a mandate that God has given us. But the question I wanna ask is what does does that look like in real life? What does giving God glory look like in real life? And and I wanna answer that question from a guy named Gideon in the Old Testament. The people, God's people were in oppression by other outside rulers. And, and it happened every so often. And, and then God would send somebody to deliver them. And what that meant was God would come to a person and give them a means to lead Israel to essentially what we would call a, a, uh, a war type victory over the oppressors. And then they'd have peace for a while. So God came to Gideon and said, Gideon, you're the guy who's gonna lead my people to conquer your enemies at this point in history. And uh, so Gideon, after a little discussion with God, went out to do what men did in that time. And he gathered a bunch of men who were ready to go to war. And and so you'd go talk to your clan, and then you'd talk to the people around you, and and you'd say, hey, come on, uh, we're gonna go, God has told me we're gonna go beat these guys. But then God said the craziest thing. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. The Midianites were the, the enemy. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. My own hand has saved me. One of the fundamental challenges we have in the Christian life is trusting God and doing things in the way that he has said so that in the end, we look up to heaven and go, you are great. And so God sets up circumstances in our life in which he will get the glory if we let him. This is one of those. And if you know the story as it went on, God winnowed the army down from thousands down to 300. And when they went out to actually fight the battle, they almost didn't do anything. God caused the army of the opposing army of thousands to rise up in confusion and fight with each other because they, they got all uh, confused about what was going on. And God caused a great victory, and there was no doubt in Gideon's mind that God won the victory. Do you pray for those things that will honor God or just the things that please you? So Gideon would have been happy with any kind of a victory. But God wanted to create a victory that would bring honor to him. God never says it's wrong to pray for what you want or what you need in particular But the prayers that he's gonna answer are the ones in which we get our desires and his glory lined up. The Apostle Paul had to go through that. We read about it in 2 Corinthians 12 where the Apostle Paul had some special privileges from God and he says this, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, God allowed him to see some things and know some things so he could be God's servant, some visions and whatnot. And he said, lest I be exalted or become arrogant because of all that God had told me, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I become arrogant. Now, does a messenger of Satan sound like something you want to have long-term in your life? I don't know if I have any, but I know I don't want any. A thorn in the flesh. I think the image of a thorn in the flesh is the image of something that hurts, but it's not necessarily incapacitating. You know, if you get a thorn in your foot, you go, oh, that hurts, but you can still walk. You understand what I'm saying? So God God wanted to give him some pain to remind him, look, I'm God and you're not. He didn't, he didn't strike him down to the ground, but he gave him this thorn in the flesh. And whatever it was, it, you know, God opened up the door in Paul's world like he did with Job in the Old Testament. And Satan got to get in there and get after him, get after him, get after him, get after him. And look how Paul responds. He responded just like you and I would. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Okay? Is there anything wrong with praying? for deliverance over the difficulties in your life? No, there's nothing wrong with praying for that. But how did Paul continue to respond to it? And he said to me, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul, then Paul responds to this statement by God when he says, therefore, I will, I will boast in my infirmities. I will, I will be proud of my weaknesses so that, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me." When you're praying about your needs and your challenges, do you most of all want God to be seen through whatever happens in your life? See, if the only thing you want when you pray is deliverance, and if God doesn't bring deliverance, then you think, why? Then you think God isn't interested, God isn't powerful, God isn't caring. And that's not true what's true is you haven't gotten your priorities lined up with god's priorities there was nobody in the world that god was working through more than the apostle paul at that time so god surely was interested in his life and yet god knew that what was best for his life was a difficulty and so the Apostle Paul said, okay, I get it. God wants me to have a difficulty, so I'm going to be okay with that. Therefore, I will take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, did, did God answer his prayer? Sure, God made him strong beyond his weakness. We think we can only be strong when God takes the weakness away. Take this away, and then I'll be strong again. And God says, no, I can make you strong through the weakness. And then what happens is people go, how, how can you be so strong through that weakness? And if you've really gotten your heart right with the Lord, that's the moment at which you say, you know, the only way I can be strong through this weakness is by him who strengthens me. And you give glory to God. And that's what God wants. Paul prayed for what he wanted, then he realized what God wanted, how he wanted to bring glory to himself through a physically challenged Paul. So he changed his mindset, and he changed his prayer. Faith-growing prayer is based in God's priorities. It's also based in my righteousness. Now, I don't mean based in what I possess, but based in what God wants to do for me. You know these familiar verses from James, my brethren, counted all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Here's the thing I want you to focus on this morning is right here. What is God, what's God doing in your life? He's making you perfect and complete. What's the perfection about? It's to be perfect like Jesus is perfect. You can read about it in Ephesians 1 where he says he has predestined us to the adoption of sons and to become like Christ in perfect holiness. And that's why he says, I'm, I'm trying to make you perfect, therefore, if you lack wisdom about this hardship in your life, ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. But how should you pray about that difficulty in your life? You should pray and say, God, I want to be more like Jesus. Will you please help me to be more like Jesus in this difficulty? And I'm telling you what, God will answer that prayer. When we pray for our righteousness, we tap into God's priority for us god's goal for our life is not comfort but righteousness oh i don't like preaching that you know why because i like to be comfortable every every one of us defines comfort just a little bit differently but we like to be comfortable and god says that's not what i'm interested in i'm interested in making you righteous And ultimately, when we take joy in his righteousness, we get his joy and his peace. And that's really what we're after anyway. There is a third priority for God, and that is other people's righteousness. Um, When Jesus would stop and look at the crowds of people, this is how he responded. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus wanted his disciples to pray for more workers so more people could become reconciled to God through faith in Christ. He didn't tell them to pray for their healing. He didn't tell them to pray for their financial success. He didn't tell them to pray for political fairness. Jesus was concerned about their righteousness. Now, God wants us to be loving, to be kind. He wants us to try to create a better world around us. There's no doubt about that. But God's primary concern for people is that they come to know Christ as Savior and become like Christ in their life. And so the question I would ask about your prayer life is this. What is your primary concern for people in your life? Are you praying for people to come to know Christ? Are you praying for people to act more like Christ for their sake? It's easy for us to look at a problem person and think, oh God, change them because they are making me uncomfortable. And God up in heaven may be saying, I know they're making you uncomfortable. I put them there for that reason but when we get our mind off of ourself and onto them, then we are praying in a way that God can answer. The third thing that I want you to understand today is this. Faith-growing prayer is based in God's superiority. This is the point at which I get to some rocket science today. You're gonna, lo- I'm going to say some really profound things right here. Turn, turn to Acts chapter 12, please. Acts chapter 12. You will only be consistent and constant in prayer if you grasp the difference between you and God. Look at Acts 12. Now about this time, Herod, that's the the king of that area of the world, reached out his hand to harass people who were Christians, some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him into prison and he delivered delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So there were four squads, that means 24 seven coverage by these soldiers In other words, they didn't just put him in jail, they assigned special guards to make sure he stayed there. Verse five, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, And a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side, raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Now he probably was chained to the guards. Okay? Chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird up yourself. In other words, get your your clothing all tied up together and get ready to run. And uh, get your sandals on. And uh, verse 8, put your garment on and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and he did not know what was done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, when he fully woke up, you know that feeling. You think, man, am I awake or am I dreaming? And he came to himself and he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together. What were they doing? Praying. And as Peter knocked on the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. And they said to her, you are crazy. You're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, hello. And they went and opened the door and saw him. And they were astonished. Here it is. Is the most profound thing I'm going to say today. I cannot do what God can do. Let me put it this way You cannot do what God can do. We forget that. We think we can handle things. You know what would happen if this happened today with Peter? Somebody would file a, a, an appeal there'd be a lawsuit there'd be a habeas corpus or whatever I don't I don't know the law they'd go hey you can't keep him in jail and blah 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 there's a fella who was imprisoned over in Iraq Christian pastor an Iraqi and boy he he was on death row for about three four years And he was finally released. And I'm here to tell you, it wasn't because somebody filed an appeal. It was because some people filed an appeal with God. I know God doesn't release all the prisoners. I know God lets some people uh, suffer from things. I know God doesn't answer prayers the way we always want them to be answered. That does not change the fact that God can do what I cannot do I need God neither Peter nor the believers could have gotten him out of jail there's just no way no way at all I must realize that I cannot solve my problems get this with more of me or more of you See that's our go-to as humans. We think, oh, if I just if I just work harder at this, if I just have some more time, if I get somebody to help me work with this, boy, then we're just going to make this thing happen. Probably not. Probably you're going to get tired, and, and if, you know what you're going to say at the end of it? What's wrong, God? And God's going to say, "I'll tell you what's wrong." <laughs> you need to start by calling out to me. There may be some things you need to do about your situation, I don't doubt that. But I have got to realize that I cannot solve my problems with more of me or more of you. Only God can heal, change, free, grow us up. Only God can fulfill your life. When you realize that, you will begin to pray as you ought for God's miraculous provision. Hey, I'm, I'm praying for miracles every day and not the kind you're probably thinking of when I say the word miracle. I'm praying that God will change people's lives. I'm praying that God will change my life. I love this quote Prayer is the renunciation of human means. In other words, prayer is when I say, I can't. I can't. It is a stripping bare, the abandonment of all human apparatus in order to place myself without arms or equipment into the hands of the Lord who decides and fulfills. It's a renunciation of human means. That's one of the key reasons why God gets glory. Because we stop and say, I can't, God, I need your help. And when he does things, we look and say, wow, look what God did! Faith-growing prayer is based in a genuine knowledge of God. It's voiced within the boundaries of his priorities in the realization that only he can help. I know there are a lot of things that we think we can do, but I would challenge you to understand that you can't really accomplish anything for God without God. This kind of prayer will grow your faith as you see the work of God in your world. As I look through a file, you know, I have files on all kinds of subjects in my office as part of my library, and I uh, went to the file cabinet and got out a file on prayer, and I was skimming through some articles and things there. And I came on some notes from a seminar that I went to. And I haven't forgotten this. I did not need these notes to remember this, but I, I, I did see the date of when I was there and was able to think back. A man named D. Duke has uh, had a tremendous prayer ministry, and, and he was just teaching on prayer. And he said something that just got a hold of me. He said, and this is a guy who, who without stretching at all, prays more than 20 hours a week okay, as a pastor. He said, I don't like to pray. It's a lot of work. I never heard a guy who was famous for praying say he didn't like to do it. I don't like to pray. It's a lot of work. And This is the thing that grabbed me. But there's a lot of things I want. Now, obviously, he wasn't talking about just, you know, I want this thing and that thing and the other thing and so on. He was looking at his life saying there are things that need to change, there are things that need to grow, there are things that need to progress. And when he said that, I went, yes! I have concerns, I have desires for the church, for my life, for my family. And God's answer to all of the things that we want is prayer. It's been 11 years since I went to that seminar, and one of the impacts it had on me was that I work at including everything that concerns me. I pray for every one of you every week, and some of you are getting prayed for more often than that depending on the needs of your life. Things in the church, things in my family, things in my life whatever it is that concerns me i'm saying i'm saying god help me to be disciplined enough to remember to pray it's so easy to just get walking on your way doing and oh i've got to get you know i get fretting and stewing and say wait a minute god is the one who is going to do he's going to meet my needs and i'm here to tell you the more you pray the more you will believe in god Heavenly Father, make yourself known here today, here this week in our lives as we commit ourselves to prayer. May we take the burdens of our heart to you. May we do it daily and faithfully and may we see your hand and may we know it's your hand as surely as Gideon knew it was your hand that brought the victory. Father, build us up in you Make us great believers as we give ourselves to the ministry of prayer. I pray in Christ's name, amen.